Hello and welcome to another episode of AdventuresIn.net. I'm John Claybo, your host, and with me today we got co-host Christian Wentz. Hey, Christian. Hi, everyone. Hey, Hi, John. And we got our favorite person called Mark. Mark Miller. That's me. I'm also my favorite person called Mark. <laughs> And then we have Adam Fermanic. Hey, Adam. And I just missed my first name is not Mark. Hey, folks. <laughs> you got uh, Mark letters in your last name, so we can figure that out. Yeah. That is true. That is that could be my alter ego, like Adam Mark Furmanek. Next oh. time. And you're joining us from a different town today, is that right? That is correct. Currently, I'm in Seattle visiting a couple conferences, friends, and so it happens that... It's funny I'm recording at a decent time, not like mid of the night, but something <laughs> like around noons, which is really convenient, I must say. It's 108, Adam. It's one in the afternoon. That <laughs> could be that could be one in the afternoon. Yeah. Yeah, you're gonna drive over and see me? It's only six hours. Oh yeah, taking my scooter <laughs> right away, right after the show. <laughs> well, little city scooters, yeah, yep, that'll be fun. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully they don't <laughs> discharge on the way. But I'll be going through Yellowstone. I guess they have chargers over there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's bring on our guest. Let's welcome Steve Smith. Hey, Steve. Hey, guys. How's it going? Good, good. Um, I don't think you probably remember, but we worked on a project together about four years ago. And so if I'm taking it easy on you this week, you know, in the show here, that's why, because we worked together in the past. Okay. It Did it tank? Did it tank? Tell us. Yeah, it did not uh, end well at that uh, project that was in Utah, if you remember it, Steve. Uh-huh. No, I know. So, <laughs> we don't tend to like to talk about that. So we'll, we'll move on to other topics. That, can, that we do better. A, can we do a show about all the projects that have tanked that we don't want to talk about? That's yeah. That's going to be my favorite show of all, I think. <laughs> That's a good idea, Mark. Next okay, panel, great. you're leading. All right. No, no, I'll lead it. But I get listeners out there, if you've got a project that tanked, we want to hear about it. Exactly. Well, All right, Steve. will be changed to, to protect the guilty, right? <laughs> All right, Steve. Get us started by giving us the intro of who you are, what you do, how you got into development, how you get into .NET for those people that don't follow you and don't know you. Sure. So there are a lot of Steve Smiths. So even in .NET space, I follow a few other Steve Smiths that are .NET uh, developers on social media. So I go by Ardalis online. And so you'll find me at, at Ardalis at various places or Ardalis.com. Uh, and that came about as a role-playing game character that I had in the 90s that then turned into like my Blizzard ID and then became like, hey, there's a username that I can actually get that's consistent across platforms. So you know that's kind of where that name came from. Um, as far as programming, uh, I've been programming since I was a kid. Uh, started on like an Apple II Plus with Apple Basic and, uh, you know, learned in, in high school. We had some basic programming and Pascal, uh, like like the basics of programming, but using Pascal. Uh, and, and then we went on to get a degree in computer science engineering uh, and, and went into consulting straight away. Uh, the main reason I chose consulting with a with a, a company uh, called Software Architects at the time um, was because I wanted to see how a bunch of different companies built software because I had no idea just coming out of college uh, and I figured that would be a good way to to see a variety of different ways to do things at different organizations and that turned out to be a pretty good uh, plan at the time. I'm glad I did that uh, because it did show me 
a lot of good and bad and different ways of, of building software, different types of teams, different types of you know, development life cycles, if you will. Uh, and then uh, after about five years, I, I decided to go out on my own, started doing my own training, uh, started a business doing online advertising, of all things. Because uh, by then I had what we would call blogs today. Uh, and there were lots of companies selling things that wanted to reach developers. So we would sell ads and kind of built that up. And then, you know, a few years later, started Nimble Pros, which is our consulting and training company. Built that up with my, my wife, Michelle, and I. Uh, we ended up selling that to Telerik, uh, who then got bought by Progress and, and basically spun that off. And Progress didn't want that. So uh, kind of did some other things for a little bit. And then, you know, we kind of relaunched Nimble Pros. Uh, a few years ago, and and are building up the consulting and training business there again. Um, so I've been in .NET space since before it was .NET. It was uh, ASP Plus way back in the day, and I was lucky enough to be uh, an MVP and an ASP Insider uh, early on in my career. Uh, got to know you know Scott Gu when he was still just a a lowly program manager and like inventor of of ASP Plus at the time, and uh, would ultimately become ASP.NET and Web Forms. Um, and I've been participating with with that with the product teams and and folks at Microsoft for uh, like twenty some years now because I'm old. Um, and uh, yeah, still still loving it, still having fun with it, keeping up with the the new stuff. As we're recording this, .NET eight is like a few days away, so um, that'll be that'll be cool. And so you basically haven't done anything, Steve. No, that's that's the net just have been sitting around. Why no, do we got yeah. this guest I mean, on, John? Come on. I, I, I just play around with stuff, right? That's that's mostly my job now. Sometimes I do it uh, because other people want my advice, but yeah. Yeah, no, I've I've worked with Steve. This guy is like, for me, I feel like he's he's got the delivery of one of the driest comedians in the world, right? But he's he's like so serious all the time, right? I think that's pretty true, right? It's kind I, of like... I, I do try to deliver my punchlines in a way that people aren't sure if I'm joking or not. That's, that's right. That's... I'm always looking for an exit when I'm in the room with Steve. <laughs> yeah, I remember when we when we first met, you introduced yourself and it was, we talked a little bit back and forth. And then I walked away and I went, Steve Smith. Is it that Steve Smith? It must <laughs> be that Steve Smith. So, yeah. It could be. There's so many of them. <laughs> there, there is actually a Facebook group that is the International Brotherhood of Steve Smiths, where every member is a Steve Smith. And, it, and it's got hundreds of members. It's not very active, but it's just like, hey, yeah, sure, I'll join this group. Of yeah, but I, I figured it was you because you know, we were kind of a pretty elite group. You know, there was you, there was Jimmy Bogard. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of other data people there that was well known in the in the .NET you know community. So I put two and two together, and it came out to five. <laughs> <laughs> All right, where should we start? Let's uh, let's talk about. APIs. How's that sound? Sure. Yeah, I love APIs. Um, so APIs have you know been a thing for a long time. Back in the early .NET days, it was you know mostly web services and ASMX files, but more more recently, everything is JSON all the way. And and ASP.NET's been doing cool stuff with that for a long time. When uh, MVC shipped, a lot of folks would use MVC, like the old original MVC from like two thousand nine, uh, to return JSON to you know JavaScript calls and. And that that evolved, and standards evolved, and you know Microsoft shipped uh, ASP.NET, you know Web API stuff that would kind of live side by side with MVC, which was nice and had some cool features, but it was also a total pain because everything was side by side with MVC, mostly due to the how they had to ship software back then with .NET Framework being tied to Windows. Um, they wanted to be able to ship something quicker, 
so they had to ship it kind of side by side instead of updating the whole thing. Um, and then finally, when we got .NET Core, they they integrated all that. It was beautiful, and we have like one you know way to build APIs. Uh, and that was true up until .NET six or so when uh, they they introduced minimal APIs. And now you, we've got two ways again. Uh, and you've got your choice between building on top of the MVC stuff that, that kind of builds on controllers and and the new minimal API stuff, which is what uh, the the product team is pushing because it's it's cleaner, it's faster, and it's it's what they're putting all their resources into uh, building out for the future. So if you're just starting a new project right now in .NET and you're on .NET six, seven, or eight, uh, you should probably be doing minimal APIs if you need to expose APIs. So I think most people think that. Minimal APIs would be something for a smaller project, you know, light workloads, not doing a whole lot. And if you need to do more, go the old controller route. Is that true? Uh, you you might think that, yeah, be, probably because of the name uh, and and like minimal sort of implying like, well, there's not a lot here, right? But I think the the real reason why they named it that is because they had built up a lot of uh, features in MVC in ASP.NET Core's implementation of MVC. Um, that they didn't necessarily always want to have in play, and it had some overhead in terms of memory and and performance um, that they didn't want to necessarily have on on APIs that didn't care about things like view resolution. Uh, yeah, we don't need views in in MVC typically, right? So let's just skip all that uh, and and filters and other things. Like we already have a way to do cross cutting concerns in ASP.NET Core. It's called middleware. Why do we need to have filters that you know work on top of that with an extra abstraction and more object allocation? So it's minimal in the sense of it's stripped down for speed. Um, and so if you're trying to build APIs, whether you're building a really small set of APIs or a really big, wide surface area of APIs, if you want speed, and you probably do, um, then minimal APIs is, is going to have an advantage over controllers every time. And when you talk speed, you mean execution and not the implementation speeds, correct? That's right. Yeah, I'm talking about at runtime. Uh, if you load test this thing and you build the same API that returns the same data, building it with minimal APIs versus building it on top of controllers and controller actions, um, the minimal API one should should win pretty much every time. Even well, if you're you know, using API controller uh, as the as the base interface, because sure. then you don't yes. have the, the whole... Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. How far is, is feature parity? I, I, because in the last couple of .NET uh, releases, there were always some new minimal API features. Mm-hmm. Which were kind of used to kind of fill some gaps. I think in .NET 8 is it's uh, it's like like form handling um, or form data handling, I believe. Um, so 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 are we there yet? Would you say, um, or is it like 95% works and the rest? Yeah, I think I think it's there yet for for most of your needs. I think it was there in .NET 7. But, you know, in .NET mm-hmm. 6 it was still pretty new. There were still some holes um, that were noticeable to me at least um, with .NET 7, they, they covered most of that. And yeah, they're still adding some new things in .NET 8. Um, but things like form file stuff is is more uh, web page than API-based anyway, right. right? So it's like it's it's something you would you would get from an HTTP post, not something that uh, your spa would, would send over, you know, a, a JavaScript type of communication. Um, so the fact that they're adding stuff like that tells you that they've already gotten all the core API-centric stuff in place mm-hmm. um, for the most part. Steve, I was interested in the the kind of going back to Adam's question when he was asking about the the uh, the execution speed versus implementation speed, and it, it occurred to me uh, that the implementation speed 
is probably got to be comparable to the traditional way of doing it. Is that true? In other words, because it's a recently built uh, API, the minimal APIs, isn't that, wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree that that's the case? Or are there, are you actually finding that, well, in order to go faster, we've got to write more code. It takes us a little bit longer to get that faster, that faster experience. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of variability in how developers organize their code um, that makes it hard to to say with any concrete, uh, you know, authority that that one or the other is faster, right? Um, so when we're talking about implementation speed, like I'm thinking, just to make sure we're on the same page, how fast can can some .NET developer build a new API endpoint in this or that, you know, version? Well, sure. I'm going to do it with a controller or I'm going to do it with an API endpoint uh, that sits on top of a controller, which is a library I have. Uh, or I'm going to do it with just minimal APIs. I'm just going to throw a bunch of stuff in program.cs. Or I'm going to do it with minimal APIs, and I'm going to use a, another framework called Fast Endpoints um, that I'm a big fan of to, to do something similar. Um, any of those, you know, at the end of the day, your, your, your action method, your, your endpoint, um, has to do with some basic things, right? It has to get the data that was sent to it, uh, ideally using model binding and not having to fetch it off of query string and form and whatever directly, but just getting the data as already in the model that it expects. And, and .NET Core does that for you, whether you're using minimal API or MVC, there's model binding support. Um, you get that input, you do something with it. Maybe you send it to a database, maybe you call another service, whatever. And then you have some type of a response and you need to format that response as you know some DTO or something perhaps. And then you return that and it gets serialized usually as JSON uh, out the other end. So you as an API developer, you mostly care about, I've got some inputs, I need to do some logic, I need to return the output in some format. And that's going to take about the same amount of time mm. using any of these approaches, uh, typically. Like that's not where the the most of the the time is spent. I don't think. Yeah. What about quality of the application in terms of maintain it, you know, ease of maintenance, flexibility of architecture? Do you see any distinctions between uh, traditional way of doing this and uh, the minimalist uh, APIs? Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely some things that you can do in in each of these different frameworks that that help. Um, the thing I don't like about controllers, and one of the things that led to, uh, honestly, you know, you were just talking about Jimmy Bogart earlier, like one of the reasons we in, he invented Mediator is because controllers were just getting too big and bloated in, in the systems he was working on. Um, and so he talks about how like they introduced the Mediator pattern specifically to reduce how much code there was in the controllers um, and instead pull that out into separate handlers. Um, and so doing something like that uh, and, and making it so that your controllers aren't getting out of control uh, is something that I've tackled as well. Um, and, and so you can use Mediator, and, and I do for a lot of things, um, but you can also just make it so your controllers only do one endpoint at a time. Like there's, there's no cohesion in a typical MVC controller that's being used for APIs, right? None of those action methods talk to each other. They have almost nothing in common. In many cases, they don't use the same dependencies uh, that, you know, that are needed to, to do their work. Uh, and so it just makes more sense to me to split them up and say, I've got one class per endpoint, um, and that's how I will organize the code. And if I have a whole lot of endpoints, I will use this really cool tool called folders to organize those files in my system uh, instead of having a, a class that has to have hundreds of lines of code um, to have all these different endpoints beside my side in them. Um, and so I've created a, a library called API Endpoints. That's an open source thing. It's It's got a, I don't know, one and a half million downloads or something. So some people are using it. Um, and it works really well, but it, it sits on top of controller. Uh, and so if you're moving to fast endpoints, I don't recommend it. 
Um, but if you're stuck on controllers, then it's great. It's a it's a great way to to move toward having uh, one file per endpoint, and it makes it easier than if you do move to um, minimal APIs in the future. You can use that same model when you move to fast endpoints, which is not my library, but one that I, I really like, uh, and it follows the same pattern that mine does. Yeah, that's what I was about to ask. So, uh, you know, when whenever I, I I'm seeing a demo about minimal APIs, no matter whether it's an intro or new features. You always get the impression that there's only one way of doing things. Put everything in program CS, right? right? I mean, yes. it's great for a conference presentation because you don't have too many context switches. It's just one file. But right. I think that that's that's maybe why 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 minimal APIs sometimes are considered as yeah, lightweight, yeah, simple things. <clears throat> um, My, Microsoft but, has a tendency of of doing demos where things look simple and and that's as far as they go. They're like this is what it looks like. Isn't this great? Here, demo, 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 demo. And it's and, and you're right. Almost every minimal API demo you'll get out of Microsoft is program.cs. And let me just keep scrolling for a few hundred lines to show you all these cool things we built. Um, you know, Damien uh, has a great repo out there called the Minimal API Playground um, that I've, I've used a lot. And, and you can learn a lot from it. And it literally is like 400 lines program.cs showing all the things you can do. Um, but that's not how you should build real code. And then, you know, they don't have a lot of demos of like, well, here's how we'd really do it if we were building, you know, something we wanted to support. Um, but that's what Fast Endpoints is. So if you, if, if you haven't seen it, um, go out to uh, fast-endpoints.com. Um, and it's, it's an open source library with some really nice docs um, that follows the Reaper pattern, which is request endpoint response, R-E-P-R, um, where for each of the API endpoints you have, you define an endpoint and then optionally, you define a request, which is a DTO, and a response, which is another DTO, um, that that endpoint works with. And then to define an endpoint, you just use a generic base class that's a you know endpoint of T request comma T response, and and it has everything wired up there for you. And then you'll also automatically get Swagger documentation out of that, right? If you, you have DTOs yep. coming in and out, right? That's right. Swagger works great. Um, the and like I said, fast endpoints works on minimal API, so it's it's not on the MVC stack. It's using minimal API. Um, you wire it up with uh, two lines of code and program CS, and then all of your endpoints are separate files. Uh, and it works it works really nice to organize large numbers of endpoints. It makes it much easier for you to find your code. Uh, eliminates a lot of merge conflicts because you're not all working in the same program.cs. Um, it's just a much better way to work for any non-trivial number of endpoints. So when you mentioned how to implement this API, you have DTO on the request side, DTO on the response side. So sounds like typical business as usual code, I would say. But sometimes we implement applications in which like, let's call it GraphQL or OData, just to pick a few, right? When you really pass crazy stuff as an input, like filters, yada, yada, and crazy stuff as an output that may be completely different between evocations, right? Depending obviously what you call, you may get completely different shape of the of the output. Do you think the the libraries we are discussing also can be utilized in such scenarios or they kind of lack something because they assume something like too simplistic view on how the endpoint should be constructed? What's your take on that? I'm not sure. I haven't tried. Um, I have used GraphQL, but mostly with non.NET backends. Uh, I know there there is .NET support for GraphQL, but I, I haven't used it in a real application yet. Um, so I mean, obviously, you could just say, you know, your request and your response are both object uh, or something like that, and they could be anything. 
um, and and that's or, or string, right? And and neither of those is terribly useful from a, a type uh, perspective on the server side. But at the end of the day, like if it really is just an arbitrary unstructured block of of JSON that's coming in and going out, um, there's not much else you can do from a typing perspective. Um, so I don't think there's anything about fast endpoints or uh, or my my tool that would make it not work in in that case where you just passed around loosely typed uh, you know objects or or whatever for the request and response. Um, but but I don't know if they add a whole lot either, right? At that point, maybe like the the one of the beauties of of you know using GraphQL is you really only need one endpoint. Um, so why use a library that's designed to make it easy to manage lots and lots of endpoints? Just build your one endpoint as a piece of middleware, um, and or not middleware, but a, a minimal API, uh, and go from there. Yeah, that sounds good. Especially that like when we talk C sharp, it's not like doesn't support things like higher kind of types or other functional structures that would let you um, uh, still keep the type safety even when you go with highly different uh, responses depending on the request type and, and whatnot. So kind of I agree with you is like string in, string out basically. Right. Have any of you used um, any of these endpoint libraries? I, I have not, but when I first started looking at minimal APIs, you know, I took that initial opinion that, okay, that's just for simple endpoints because I was thinking, I don't want to clutter up either, either my program CS or startup CS with, mm-hmm. you know, just big long list of all endpoints and then things like that. So what are the, what are the patterns that you would use to make sure you've got a clean program or startup file? If you weren't using something like fast endpoints, the, the main pattern I see people using is extension methods. Uh, and so you would have some extension method of like, you know, wire up customer endpoints, wire up order endpoints. And then somewhere there's a method that basically takes all that same crud that you'd have inside of program.cs and it just has it inside this extension method. Um, and so that's the the typical way to organize large numbers of minimal APIs if you're not using something that's more class-based. Um, and it's worth m- m- mentioning that uh, the way the .NET team is is developing minimal APIs they are more of a, a functional uh, approach, a more JavaScripty, uh, ExpressJS type of, of approach to how you define these things. Everything's everything's a lambda. They are all functions. Um, it is not a very object oriented approach like the MVC one was, where everything was a controller or everything was a you know some type of a strongly typed thing um, that was involved. So by using something like fast endpoints, you're sort of uh, putting some some object orientedness back into the mix. Uh, because it exposes uh, basically two methods on each endpoint. One called configure, which is where you set up the route and set up the, you know the authorization requirements or the swagger you know specific settings or things like that. And then there's a handle method that basically takes in a request and returns a response. And that's where that's what would have been your action method in a controller, or would be your lambda in a minimal API. Yeah, that's cool. When talking about APIs and all that stuff, it seems like every single programmer in .NET used those. So we probably made tons of mistakes, anti-patterns, and whatever bad decisions. Like from your experience, what are the biggest issues, biggest pain points that the developers face, and how would you recommend like avoiding them or, or making life easier? Probably the biggest thing I see in you know web-based development and API-based development um, is the duplication of cross-cutting concerns inside the endpoints. So if, if, you're, if you're a developer and you're building an API and you build the very first endpoint 
And in that endpoint, you've got a few things. You've got some error handling, you've got some authorization checks, and then you're doing whatever the work is. Uh, and maybe doing something like, you know, checking that the model is valid. Uh, and so like, you're, you're looking at, you know, imagine this is 10 years ago using MVC or, or uh, Web API. Um, and in there, you've got, you know, this check to say like, if model state that is valid, blah, 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 do some work. If user dot is enroll admin, if, you know, now do a try and then try and call this service and then catch if, you know, the database didn't work or whatever, you know, do, th- create this uh, exception and return this error response, else return a 401 unauthorized, else return a, you know, uh, 400 uh, client, you know, bad request or whatever, right? And so you'd have all this stuff that's in there and only a tiny bit of it is actually the work you want to do. Everything else are these cross-cutting concerns about validation and error handling and auth. Um, so the thing that you need to do as a developer when you see those cross-cutting concerns is figure out if the framework already has a better way to pull that out of your code, right? Maybe there's an attribute you can apply to say authorize. Um, maybe there's some some other thing that you can do for uh, a global error handler or doing model validation in a smarter way. Um, and if there's not one out of the box, create one, right? Create your own filter, create your own middleware, um, create a way to, to pull those things out of your code so that, you know, if you build five endpoints, every one of them has the same if check to do a certain cross-cutting concern, there has to be a way, a pattern that will let you pull that out and have a policy for how you're going to do that for all your endpoints and not have it be a copy-paste thing you have to do on every endpoint. Okay, that sounds about right. And we all know like authorized attribute, right? But sure. then like I've seen many projects in which we tried um, extracting those cross-cutting concerns, as you call them. And then our endpoints are like authorized uh, handle request issue, handle user incorrect role, yada, yada, yada. You have this big Christmas tree of attributes. And then right. comes the endpoint code, which is like service X do the magic for me. Is this the right way or? I, I'm not suggesting it. attributes are the, the golden hammer that we use to solve every one of these cross-cutting concerns, right? Uh, it, but there, there are various patterns and you can pick the one that works best for you and your application. That's why it's useful to know more than one pattern, right? So maybe a decorator works in some cases. Maybe, you know, you have a, a class or service that does some things and you can create a decorator on that service that does an authorization check or does a validation or does whatever. Right. Or, you know, you, you have a lot of different services and you don't want to have to create decorators for every different service. That's a lot of code. And at the end of the day, most of those decorators look kind of the same. Like one authorization decorator for service A looks a lot like this other authorization decorator for service B. So you can say, OK, well, I know I'll use generics. Right. Well, you could do that. But now all your services have to kind of look the same for that to work. Um, another approach you can use that I've found to be really helpful um, is use the chain of responsibility pattern which we mentioned Mediator earlier, works really well with Mediator, where you can kick off the, the request uh, for a query or for a command um, in your endpoint and, and use Mediator or, or a similar library to, to fire that off. And then you can define a chain of essentially middleware. It's the same pattern that middleware uses um, that that request has to go through. And that can include an authorization check, validation, maybe it's doing uh, some logging, maybe you want to do caching, like any of these cross-cutting concerns can be a small uh, filter, handler, piece of middleware, whatever you want to call it. Um, in, in Mediator, it's called a pipeline behavior. Um, and so this pipeline you create with these behaviors uh, allows you to, to basically create your own uh, middleware pipeline for all those cross-cutting concerns. 
So I'm not saying you need to use that one everywhere, uh, but I just named a few, you know, different choices that you could use um, to solve that type of problem. Mm-hmm. That sounds good. So in your opinion, like, um, and again, opinionated question, opinionated answer, uh, like this controllers or endpoints layer, what should be actually, how, how would the method look like? Is it basically just a single line of code that goes to some service or mediator or something else? Or do you keep some more logic in those endpoint methods? It depends on how complex the application is, in my opinion. Uh, I, am, I don't want business logic to be in there, any, any kind of sig- significant business logic. And so most of my applications have a separation of uh, a domain model that is uh, independent of infrastructure and, and separate from the web project. Uh, and, and so I, I usually use what I, what I call clean architecture. I have a standard template that you can find on NuGet that I use for that. Um, and a lot of the time, if I'm creating endpoints using my API endpoints, using fast endpoints, they will just work directly with the domain model. And so if I have all the logic in the domain model, then you know if I need to be able to get an entity and then call some logic on it, call some methods on it or whatever, and then save its state, you know, I might just inject into that endpoint a repository, and that repository is my pattern for persistence. And I'll say, go repository, go get me, you know, this customer with this ID, and then call customer dot, you know, do something, and then save customer, right? And then that's it. That's the endpoint. And if it's really those three lines of code, I'm pretty happy with that. Um, however, if it starts to get more complicated, or if I want to have multiple different front ends for this thing, maybe I'm going to build a CLI that also works with it, or uh, a WinForms app that also works with the same model, which is rare, but you know, if, if you needed that, um, it may make sense to have a separate application layer that you talk to that has that logic in it um, and that the APIs don't necessarily talk to. Uh, and if you're going to follow CQRS, Command Query Responsibility Segregation, um, it can be helpful to make it so that your APIs only know about commands or queries. They issue those using something like Mediator. And then the application services are just a bunch of handlers that handle queries or handle commands and then the application service is the one that works directly with the domain model. Um, but it provides another layer of indirection, but also another hook where you can add all this, all this pipeline behavior, um, which is easy to do in, in one place at that point. Mm-hmm. And closing maybe on this like, like stream of questions, what about dependency injection and different scopes? What's your, what's your take on that? Do you prefer like singletons with your endpoints or do you prefer transient for, for the scope of, services that you use or whatever else? How does it look like? Or maybe it doesn't matter and it's like a matter of personal preference? Um, the the endpoints are usually created for you. You know, that's not usually something you even have to register uh, yourself, right? So um, that that I'm not too worried about. The, the actual services that you have to define and register, um, most of the time I default to scoped for those. Um, and the reason is because Entity Framework is scoped things that rely on any framework should typically be scoped. Um, and so anything that's going to end up having persistence involved in it, uh, it often makes sense for that to be scoped. So it's within that one request. There are some things that will make sense to be singletons, but those tend to be the exception, not the rule. And there's other things that if they're, if they're you know, purely stateless, um, I guess purely stateless ones could probably be singletons. I'm trying to think, when would I use transient? Uh, there's a lot of stuff that could be transient too. But you want to be careful with that um, when you're using other things that have to be scoped. So usually, my default is mostly things are going to be scoped, which means they only live for the life of one request and they go away. So is, is testing very similar between minimal APIs and your, your controller-based? Uh, yes. 
the the testing is separate from um, which of those things you're using. It's it's still going to use the same structure, uh, the test host um, and the I forget the name of the thing, but you know basically there's a base class that you use to wire up that uh, you you can change what the the services are that you're using inside your host, um, the host that is hosting your ASP.NET Core app. Um, and so those functional tests or those integration tests uh, operate the same, where they're basically issuing requests from an HTTP client to your APIs, and it doesn't know or care if those APIs are, are implemented using minimal APIs or using controllers or using you know API endpoints or using FastM. It doesn't care. Right? It just takes a route and it, and it hits your, your app with it. And so there, there, there's nothing in fast APIs or API endpoints that I don't know. Maybe facilitates that by I don't know skipping the the HTTP uh, client part in in the test or provide a mock or I I don't know if that would make sense, right? But um, yeah, I mean you you can unit test yeah. controllers uh, and and you can unit test these API endpoints. I don't I don't recommend yeah. it. Uh, it's pain. Yeah. And, yeah, and it, I prefer going the same route that later the software will, right? Essentially, yeah. Yeah, the, the the well, and, and a big problem with it is if you do refactor to pull out cross-cutting concerns, expect all your unit tests to break. All right. Whereas if you have these these sort of integration or what I call functional tests that are hitting the API endpoints um, using that test host and using an API client using an HTTP client, um, they are not going to break if you don't change the external behavior, right? So if I had you know, initially inside of my action method, I had an if check to say, if you're not in this role, return a 401 not authorized. And then I change that and I put that inside of an authorized attribute. Well, my unit test doesn't see the attribute. The unit test just calls the method. And so the unit test blows up if I refactor that. Whereas the integration test still sees that I get a 401 either way and, and continues to pass, right? And so it allows me to be more flexible in how I organize, uh, you know, how the sausage is made inside the API um, as long as the external contract is fulfilled, these these integration tests uh, continue to pass, and they still give you that safety net that you haven't broken any of. And they're really fast, right? They're if you haven't used them, uh, if if you've done testing in the past and it was painful because you had to go through HTTP and you had to have an IIS running somewhere and you had to have an HTTP context, everything like it was really painful in full framework.net uh, to do any of this sort of testing in .NET Core. It's really fast. It's it's really portable. You can put it in your CI CD build. It doesn't have to run any type of an actual real web server. You never have to worry about it hitting like a firewall or something like that because it doesn't actually go over the network, right? You don't have to open up ports or any of that. Um, so it's it's super fast and it's a really reliable uh, way to do testing. So what's coming up uh, in .NET 8 that's not in .NET 7? Um, well, not a whole lot that, that I'm too interested in with, with minimal APIs that I've seen. Uh, there's a whole lot of new cool stuff happening with Blazor. There's some new stuff in C Sharp, C Sharp 12. Uh, probably the biggest one that, that I'm playing with is the new parameterized constructors. Um, what's that feature called? Any of you know? Um, C Sharp 12. I, I know what you mean, but I'm also... <laughs> primary. That's what it is. Primary <laughs> constructors. Um, and so primary constructors are going to make it so it's a little bit easier to do dependency injection and also create uh, types that have, you know, dependencies that even if they're not services, but like, you know, I want to create a customer, I want to make sure the customer always has a name. Well, I can create a primary constructor that takes in string name um, instead of having to actually define a constructor. Uh, it's literally just public class customer open paren string name uh, close paren. 
right? So it's right there on the on the definition of the class, just like you know if you were declaring a method. Uh, and so that's that's I've I've implemented that in my clean architecture template, um, and it saves you know half a dozen lines of code in every file that has bi, um, because you're just putting it right there on the class line instead of having to have a constructor that then assigns it to a field. Um, that that primary constructor that value is available for the life of that class, so you don't have to do the the you know, little dance of of take this thing in the constructor and assign it to a private read only field. Like it's just there for you then. Yeah. But I mean, minimally, you get. Uh, yeah, so sometimes some people complain that uh, that that many of the new .NET or C# features they are syntax sugar and don't offer anything significantly new. But I'm totally with you. Less code, more often than not, is better, right? And uh, so as long as it's as long as it's cleaner. clear what it's doing, yeah, for sure. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, Sean, over to you. Yeah. So, but minimal APIs are going to be basically the same between .NET seven and .NET eight. I. Yeah, I don't recall. Yeah, yeah. I looked at it last week uh, to see what was coming new yeah. in ASP.NET Core, and I didn't see yeah. a whole lot. The the for, form file thing was one. Um, I'm not sure what else there is. is there, there might be some you, stuff I missed. But. Is there something you'd like to see them change about minimal APIs, how to make them better? If they had support out of the box for a more file-based organization, instead of having to rely on the community for something like fast endpoints, like, I don't want to take away, you know, the folks that built that, you know, like, you have Microsoft, you know, I don't know. Yeah, if if Microsoft could have something like that, uh, and and hopefully do it in a way that doesn't annoy the community having built things, um, I think that would be nice. Because right now, there's not a lot of stuff in the box that says, "Well, how would we build a bunch of minimal APIs in a way that would be maintainable and easy to organize and stuff?" It's like, "Well, here, just throw all these things in program.cs and and good luck." Like, eh, okay, then developers are left up to their own devices to figure out how to actually organize that code. Actually, I think a funny thing is uh, one of the new features that I happen to know of that that comes in minimal APIs uh, in .NET 8 is you mentioned before that uh, that that minimal APIs uh, uh, have have advantages over the controller-based aspects and the control-based aspects are more the the webby and, and website stuff. Now, actually, what will be added to minimal APIs is uh, support for those uh, anti-cross-site request forgery tokens that are usually part of a, a form, right? So in those areas where you have an API that is the target of a form post where a cross-site request forgery token has been part of that. So that that, that there's a new middleware, I believe, uh, for that. Is that a critical feature? I'm not too sure, but uh, on the other hand, if uh, they only innovate a little bit on minimal APIs, that could also be a sign that it's more or less feature complete now, right? So, um, right, yeah, exactly. Absolutely ready to use. Yeah, I just pulled up their their list of what's new, and and it's three things. There's you know binding to forms, anti forgery with minimal APIs, uh, and an I resettable interface in object pool, which I don't even know what that is. I don't think it's something high on my list. Um, Oh, I know. Sorry, there's one couple more. There's uh, use override culture um, that you can do for request localization. Okay. That, but, that, but yeah, cool. but yeah, not not a lot of really you know core features that were that were missing until this point. So yeah. All right. Any any other new projects uh, you are you're working on or plans uh, for um, uh, for API endpoints uh, or I, I'm. Ventures? Still building lots of them. Uh, I, I do have a set of uh, test helpers for testing them uh, because I do write a lot of those integration tests I was just talking about. So um, I do have an our Dallas dot, uh, I don't know what it's called, something API test helpers. 
Um, but look for look for that to to make it easier to write those tests so that every one of those tests kind of looks the same. It's like mm-hmm. I need a route. I need to create a uh, a thing that I want to send to the API as a DTO or whatever if if you need one. And then I need to create a client, and then I need to take this client, create this request, pass it to this route for this verb. It's a get, it's a post, it's a put, whatever. Right? Every one of those is slightly different. And then I need to get the response. Well, the response isn't in the form I want. So I have to take the response. I have to find the string payload. I have to turn that body into uh, an actual object using JSON deserialization. And then at the end of all those steps, I can do an assert to say, is you know this DTO dot whatever property equal to the thing I expected? Um, and so my set of helpers basically makes that like one line of code. So you can say something like uh, post to this endpoint with this type uh, and expect this result. And it's, you know, easy, easy to do and your tests are a lot smaller. So um, that, that's one thing I would say. It's, it's pretty stable now. I wrote it, you know, a couple of years ago and it's, it's only gotten one or two releases in the last year. Um, but it's, it's pretty stable and it's really nice. Um, the other thing I'm doing more of is uh, more workshops around clean architecture. Uh, and I do use minimal APIs and fast endpoints in all my clean architecture stuff these days. Uh, and so I work with with clients and and uh, I'm doing one at the um, Dev Intersection thing coming up next month in in Orlando. Orlando. Uh, basically building a building an application using domain driven design and clean architecture and and fast endpoints and minimal APIs um, to to just build it all together in a day. Steve, I've got kind of a, an off topic question for you, but it's something I wonder about. Um, about I think you in particular, um, in the role of a uh, a consultant, and I imagine you at some point in your life sitting down with a client and seeing some really atrocious code, something that really just is unsettling. And I wonder, do do you how do you communicate that? Is there, a, is there a discrepancy between like the screaming voices in your head and what you say out loud? Because with me, there's not. And there's no way I'm going to be able to be quiet if I see something like that. How do you do that, I guess? Right. Yeah, you don't, you don't want to go to the client that's paying you to come and help them write better code and look at their code and say, oh, my God, who the hell wrote this? What, right. what were you thinking? Um, no, the, the thing that I always like to communicate, and, and, and it's, it's totally honest, uh, is the fact that the reason why they have a business, the reason why they have the budget to to bring in any consultants to help them, uh, is that this thing is running the company probably, right? In most cases, that's the thing I'm looking at. Right? This is the thing that's making all the money. This is what their 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 users or their their business people or their or their end customers um, are using every day, and it's it's the reason why they have a business. Um, and so. In many cases, like, is it as nice and pretty as on the inside as as you might have liked? Um, no. And is it extensible for the future, like today? Maybe not as much as they would like, right? But it's the thing that has worked for the last, you know, five or ten or however many years it's been. Um, and a lot of times, it's it's pretty cool tech that you know they built uh, many times with you know duct tape and bailing wire. You know, ten years ago, before we had libraries for any of the stuff. You know, I've got I've got companies I've I've worked with that you know, have, uh, you know, image things that they had to build. And way back in the early web forums days, they built something that was like equivalent to Flickr with, you know, every type of um, way to, to change the image and everything using postbacks and doing everything on the server because that was the tooling we had at the time, right? And and it was a lot of code and it was, it, some of it was, you know, kind of a mess, but they freaking built Flickr 
for this business application that that didn't really have anything to do with sharing, you know, slideshows or or anything online. It was it was for this other need that their their particular business had. Um, but but it was it was full featured. It had all that stuff. So the thing that you have to be uh, is legitimately impressed with the business, the, the fact that they built successful software, which so many projects are never successful. So many businesses aren't successful. Like that's the thing to lead with. And then it's like, yeah, because you did such a good job building something that actually solves real problems. Now we have a new problem, which is how do we make it work tomorrow? How do we make it extend into this other market or onto this other platform or, or whatever, right? And so we're just, we're addressing a new engineering problem um, that we only have because they were so good at addressing the engineering problems of yesterday. Yeah. Sean, can you make a note? This is the best answer to any Mark Miller question ever <laughs> given on this show in the history. You just note that for now. Steve, Steve's got it until he's dethroned. I'll let him know when that happens. But he's the winner. That was, that was an amazing answer. Oh my God, I want to hire you now, Steve. All right. I appreciate it. So I have one more question before we move on to picks. And that is if for those people that are out there and they have a bunch of API based controllers. Mm-hmm. Should they consider moving them over to minimal APIs, or if they're working, just leave them alone? Okay, so you're, there's there's two scenarios where they have uh, controller-based APIs. One is they're on .NET Core or .NET, you know, .NET these days. The other one is that they're still on .NET Framework 4.0, whatever, uh, and they're using you know MVC five or Web API two or whatever back there. If they're still on .NET Framework, they should be moving to .NET Core, .NET six seven eight. Um, you're talking to me <laughs> soon, sooner rather than later. Um, but if you're on .NET and, and you have a bunch of working stuff that's in controllers and it's not broken, then there's really not much reason to fix it. Um, you know, you will get a, a small increase in performance and uh, other benefits from moving to a minimal API-based approach. Uh, and so if you need that performance, um, then you might consider it for that reason on a maybe a case-by-case basis, the most critical of your uh, your APIs. But that's usually not the first thing you want to reach for. Like that that extra 5% or whatever that you might get at the framework level is probably nothing compared to how much you'd save by adding a database index or, or adding some caching uh, or some other thing that will have a much bigger uh, ROI for a lot less work um, than, than trying to shift the whole thing over to minimal APIs. All right, great. And with that said, we'll move on to picks. Um, let's go with Christian first. What's your pick this week? Yeah, I have a, a pick that's kind of a two-sided sword, um, and it's uh, kayak.com slash trips. So kayak, I think they now belong to, to booking.com or have been for, for 10 years now, uh, like flight and hotel search comparison site. And they have a service that uh, when you get a confirmation email from a hotel booking, flight booking, whatever booking, you just forward it to a specific email address. And then for most uh, uh big providers, they can parse it and then kind of um, get the, retrieve the information from that and then you have a, like a planning site. Now, uh, others like I think tripit.com, they, they have that as well. But what they do is if they can't parse it, they, they have a team somewhere that then does that manually. That's the two-sided sword, right? So people get your confirmation emails, you know, those with the click here to cancel this reservation button or with the, the airline booking code, which then can be used to retrieve all kinds of data. So again, two-sided sword. But it works pretty well. So um, I just wanted to mention that. And um, I think it's, it's, a, it's a great uh, great free service. Um, if you 
do the proper uh, risk management, of course. Over to uh, Mark. Uh, my pick is uh, a show on uh, Netflix called The Diplomat. Um, I, uh, I, I've seen only two episodes of this, but episode one I thought was really well written. Uh, it reminded me of Aaron Skorkin, if you guys are a fan of this guy. He's a great, great writer. Um, the writing style was was not identifiably like his, but it was similarly fast, multiple things going on at the same time. Uh, uh, really liked it. There's a conversation I remember. Uh, a couple are in bed and both are on the phone talking to two different people at the same time. And uh, if you're into that kind of high-level cerebral kind of, uh, uh, I'm not sure if we call it a thriller or not yet, but it's definitely, you know, it's a, uh, it's a drama. Uh, I, was, uh, I was liking it. I was really liking it. Um, it was really not, not bad at all. The first two episodes so far are good. All right, Adam, what's your pick? So it's going to be technical pick as always. This time it's application called EveryProxy on Android. And it's not something special. What I mean here is just an HTTP proxy or just pack proxy that you can use. However, the important stuff with that is with this way you can transparently route some VPN over any other VPN this way or any other proxy because then Android can configure a system-wide HTTP proxy for a Wi-Fi connection. So what you can do now is you take two phones from one, you set up every proxy and turn on um, uh, what it's called access point. And then from the other phone, you can, or other device, could be Windows, could be Linux, you just connect to this Wi-Fi and set this proxy. And since most of our today's world VPNs, they, surprise, surprise, just use HTTPS behind the scenes, they can go through this proxy. And this way you can route VPN over VPN if ever you need that. So that's my pick for this week. And with that being said, back to you, Sean. All right. So uh, my pick this week is kind of a, a fun little time waster and it's called uh, the reaction time test so it's basically just a little web page where you hit start and then it flashes real quick at some point in time and it's like how fast do you click back on it so the fastest time that i have on it so far is 199 milliseconds which they say is pretty good so you want to wait a little bit of time yeah that is good sean i can tell you right now <laughs> that about 150 is about like the, is the blazing as fastest that I think a human could really do between input and click and getting that execution out. And the shorter you are, the faster you can be because it takes less time for the signal to go through your nerves to reach the muscles. So smaller people have faster reaction times uh-huh. than the big lanky guys like me. <laughs> All right. So I have an unfair advantage. So I'll take that. Because usually short people don't have unfair advantage. Right. You might also try, instead of using your finger, try smashing your elbow, right? It's less than <laughs> half the distance, right? That's what I'm talking about. Man. Yeah, but it's, it's, a, it's, a longer, it's a longer lever, though. So that's going to be slower. So all right. Well, really I don't, slower. Yeah, okay. Do your best, man. That's all I'm saying. Practice. All right. All right. When talking physics, actually, just because of the law of gravity, telekinesis is a thing because you may find it hard to believe, but this finger is attracting all the matter in this universe. So now I'm telekinetically touching you, Mark. <laughs> I hope you felt that. <laughs> I don't like that. 
It was very uncomfortable for me. Crash, oh, crash, right. crash, uh, crash, uh, crash, crash. Uh, okay, but please, uh, this is getting out of hand. Uh, Steve, uh, you have your pick, please. Uh, all right, technical picks. Um, I, I'll just uh, promote my clean architecture template that I've just updated for .NET 8. So uh, if folks want to play with that, that would be awesome. Uh, non-technical, uh, I just had my birthday this week, so I, I decided to, to goof off for a bit, and I installed uh, Bridge Builder Portal Edition on Steam. So if you ever played any of the bridge builder games, you can like build a bridge and you know use spans and and uh, I don't know cables and things. Um, if you like the game Portal, uh, this is like taking that those two games and mashing them together. So all your bridges and things are like sending carts through portals and uh, going through obstacles and knocking over turrets that talk to you and and fun stuff like that. So um, it, it's it's been fun. I've played through like probably 30, 40 of the the levels. I'm not sure how many there are, but so you can check it's it out. A- so I get the the I played Portal before, but yeah. the bridge builder part is it is it kind of like a structural engineering puzzle? Totally. Yep. It is. Yep. You've got a few uh, like points that you can build off of, um, and and from those points, those are the things that can support your your bridge members. Um, and so from there, you build things and and triangles are your friend, obviously. So you, you try and build a lot of triangles because they're stable, uh, and and you can use rigid uh, girders essentially or cables. Um, and try and build different types of bridges, suspension bridges, whatever. Um, and then it adds some cool portal things. So there's stuff that, you know, obviously there's portals that teleport you to places, but there's also, uh, you know, bouncy things that when when the the little carts that fly through this land on them, they bounce. Um, and, and some of the portals are angles. So you end up shooting them out through the air and then they bounce on things. And uh, a lot of the levels, you're, you're trying to send like 10 of these carts through and, and they have to crisscross each other. So you got to time it right so that they're not wow. running into each other as they as they fly through your bridge of madness. Um, so yeah, it, it's fun. So it's, it's a time waster, but it's a fun one. Sounds awesome. All right, I'm going to retire soon, kids. <laughs> I got to play right. this game. Uh, happy belated birthday, Steve. Oh. oh, thank you. All right, Steve, if our uh, listeners or watchers have questions, uh, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, I'm Ardalis everywhere. So find me on on Twitter uh, at A-R-D-A-L-I-S or ardalis.com or on YouTube Ardalis or GitHub Ardalis, whatever. Or That's catch it. you at uh, Dev Intersections. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Great. Come there or Code Bash. I'll be out as well here in another month and a half. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show this week and, and talking with us, Steve. It was great to have you. Thanks. Glad Peace to be here. Soon. It was fun. All right. We'll catch everybody else on the next episode of Adventures in .net. 